0: Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. It's the second book of the New Testament. We'll be looking at chapter 12 this morning. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you you a Bible this morning. We have some back at the bookstall. If you weren't able to pick up one last week, please head on over there. We'd like to give you one so that you can take the Word of God with you throughout the week and you can be reading it and studying it on your own. It'll be good for your soul and it'll be an encouragement to you throughout the week. Well, let's pray and ask God to bless our time. Father, we entrust these minutes to you this morning. We ask that you would give us teachable and humble hearts, that you'd convict us of sin and encourage us in holiness as we engage with the living word of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you celebrated one of my favorite holidays of the year this week. It's a day that our family looks forward to. October 31st, Reformation Day. Many of you are a little worried if I dress up like a goblin or a monster every year on October 31st. No, instead our family celebrates really a much more important day, Reformation Day. We often celebrate by watching a movie on the Reformation and recounting what God did hundreds of years ago. In fact, what happened uh, it was almost 500 years ago when a young German monk named Martin Luther would do something that would set the Christian world ablaze with scandal. He wrote out 95 theses or statements, and he nailed them to the church door at Wittenberg, Germany, to contest these indulgences. That was the whole problem here, was these indulgences that the Catholic Church would pass out. Now what an indulgence was was a certificate. That the church would give you that would tell you that a deceased family member now was admitted from purgatory to heaven. Now purgatory is this erroneous belief that there's actually some level between heaven and between hell that you could go when you died to... Uh, suffer and be cleansed because of your sins. So you would go to purgatory, you'd be there for any thousands or millions of years, and you'd burn and suffer and die, and then when you were cleansed from your sin, you would be admitted into heaven. This process could take millions of years, and there was a man named John Tetzel in the Catholic Church. This man would go from town to town, and he'd have a little saying, a little jingle that he would say. He would say, as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. He'd go around and say this jingle, meaning if you put a coin in the pot, then you can free a deceased family member from suffering in purgatory, and they can be admitted straight into heaven. He would go up to you and say, friend, listen quietly. Listen quietly. You can hear your grandmother screaming from the fire. Save me. Save me. You would get pretty scared because you're hearing granny. You're pretty nervous. And so you would put a coin into the coffer. And you'd receive in turn a certificate that said, Grandmother saved. And you take it home with you because you had just freed your grandmother from purgatory and admitted her into heaven because of your money. Just like that, admittance into heaven through payment. Well, one day this German monk just had enough. He said, this isn't what the Bible says. And he went to the equivalent, the modern day equivalent of a bulletin board, which was the church door. And he nailed these 95 problems to the wall to begin a discussion or a debate. Martin Luther, right then, began to face up to the religious authorities of his day. And he said that they had it wrong. He had studied the scriptures he was coming to grasp with the biblical gospel. And he said that one is saved only by God through Christ alone. That no works can save you. That Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. That the ultimate authority in the church is God's holy word, not a fallible person or tradition or anything else. And so Luther stood up with others, with John Calvin and with Ulrich Zwingli and others. And many of these reformers gave up their lives fighting for this truth of the gospel. That one is saved by grace through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. That our authority comes through scripture alone, all to the glory of God alone. This war against evil and the fight for truth to prevail is is in a sense what we have going on during Passover here in the book of Mark. Jesus is up against the religious leaders, the heretical religious leaders of his day. And in just a few days, he's going to give up his life for the truth of salvation. In Mark 12, those that come against Jesus are the Pharisees and the Herodians. Then we'll see a group called the Sadducees all confront him. We'll see two things in our passage this morning, two corrections to false understanding that Jesus gives us. And the first is life before resurrection, and then he'll give us some misunderstandings about life after resurrection, and he'll make some corrections. Now, we're not talking about the resurrection of Christ, per se. We're talking about the resurrection of our human bodies. So that'll serve as our outline this morning. Uh, Two points. First, life before resurrection, and then second, life after resurrection. Well, let's start with point one, life after before resurrection. We'll read from verses 13 down through 17. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked them, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And They were amazed at him. this is Wednesday of Passover week. If you've been with us the last few weeks, remember that this is the equivalent of the Christmas season at the temple. It's packed. It's been quite a week filled with verbal confrontations and filled with Jesus going into the temple and causing quite a stir. You can almost feel the tension in the air as you read through these chapters of Mark. Now, in verse 13, the Pharisees and the Herodians come up to him on a premeditated verbal ambush of Jesus. And this is an odd couple. These two groups didn't like each other at all. The Herodians followed uh, Herod the Great and lived immoral lives. They didn't care about sin. And then the Pharisees, on the other hand, prided themselves on keeping every little point of the law, so much so that it looked, at least on the outside, that they were living holy and blameless lives. So these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they didn't like each other much, but they had one thing in common. They hated Jesus they hated Jesus, and so these words in our passes aren't meant to be kind. You are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men. No, they're showering Jesus with empty flattery. They don't really mean what they say, but these words are dripping with irony, aren't they? Because the words are true, aren't they? The words are exactly right. Jesus is a man of integrity, and he won't be swayed by men which is why he can see right through their trap. He sees what they're doing. And they asked Jesus, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, there's several taxes in this Roman Empire. They were talking specifically here about what was called the head tax or a poll tax. You paid it simply if you were a part of the Roman Empire. It was a new tax instituted in 6 AD. It was just one denarius, about a day's wage for a laborer. But this tax wasn't instituted without a fight. I mean, Judas the Galilean, back in 6 AD, led a great revolt. It's not the same Judas as we read about in the Bible, but this Galilean called all the Jews to revolt and to stop paying the tax. He led an armed group and they cleansed the temple, similar to what Jesus had done. And they shouted, Let God be king! Down with Caesar! Let God be king! Down with Caesar! And this man was hoping to bring in the kingdom of God. But soon as you read history, this Judas was caught, he was executed. No kingdom. Now, 25 years later, Jesus built his entire teaching on the kingdom of God, and he had just cleansed the temple see there's one part missing. Jesus, what do you think about the head tax? Because it wasn't just about the tax. They're asking him, are you a a revolutionary? You just cleansed the temple. You just called for the kingdom. What about the tax? It, It was a trap. Because if Jesus says, don't pay it, He's armed for a revolt like Judas the Galilean, and he'll soon be crushed by Rome and put to death. But if he says, yes, pay the tax to Rome, then everyone who despised Rome, everyone who despised the taxes, will say, this man's a traitor. He didn't really come to bring in the kingdom, he's in partnership with Rome. So, can one pay taxes to Caesar and still give allegiance to God? can you do both well the answer to this question actually has remarkable remarkable bearing on how we live our lives before the resurrection Jesus answer is simply stunning you know typically politicians don't answer hot questions do they They get real good at changing the subject. They smile a lot. They jump around the answer. They pull out their full bag of tricks just to not get you to pin them down on what they really believe. And you end up rolling your eyes. You end up angry and upset. Well, were these people angry after Jesus' answer here? Verse 17 says, They were amazed. They were amazed. And Jesus says, Give me a denarius. He takes the coin and he says, whose portrait's on it? They told him, Caesar. And he says, well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's a simple answer. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Well, the idea here behind the word give, or in some translations you might see the word render, it's actually kind of hard to translate into English. It has the idea of paying back what one deserves. So, Jesus is essentially saying, Give him his money. It's Caesar's, it's got his image on it, he's on the coin. It was literally minted out of his own wealth. He minted it. So, give him what is his, be a good citizen, be obedient to Caesar. What Jesus is teaching here is that life on this earth before resurrection is one where there is a governing authority on this earth that we are to respect. That we are to obey, that we are to be in submission to. Now this has major implications for our lives, doesn't it? Specifically as we think about our life here in the UAE. And so I, I want to take us through two subpoints of this first point here, to look at what bearing this has on our lives. So two subpoints. Under this first point first, that we are to be good citizens under the leadership of our ruling government. We are to be good citizens under the leadership of our ruling government. Romans 13.1 says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. you see what Paul is saying here? That God has placed the rulers here in the UAE over us. That it was God's idea that he has placed his highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid al Matum as the ruler of Dubai in his sovereignty. And we're to be thankful to God and thankful to our rulers. This idea of government is a good thing. Government is a gift to us. The provision of food, the building of roads, the very fact that we were all able to get here this morning and drive on the same side of the street is a gift of God. The fact that I was able to navigate those roundabouts, I'm still trying to figure out who has the right of way on these roundabouts as I drive. The fact that I'm here safely, the fact that you're here safely, we owe in thanksgiving to to our government. They build roads and bridges, they bring in water, they provide security. Our governments are never perfect. Sometimes they're actually tragically imperfect. But our government is a gift to us. Have you ever thought of it that way? that our government is a gift to us. I mean, think about the unrest in many of the countries around us. Are we thankful for the peaceful life we have in the UAE? Are we thankful for the religious freedom that we have here, that we can gather here in the center of Dera in this hotel? I pray that for us as a church, this never gets old, and thanking God that we can gather corporately here in the heart of the Middle East. It was the reformer John Calvin's opinion that there is no higher calling than to be a civil authority. And so we're told in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for the kings and those in high positions. That's why we pray for our rulers every week here at Redeemer. We pray that God would bless them. We pray that they would live quiet and dignified lives. We pray that they would hold up the very rule of God. And so as citizens, we have to be praying for those rulers. But not only that, we're also called to be great citizens. It's the Christians who should be leading the way here. We should be the ones loving our cities. We're the ones who don't cheat. We're the ones who don't steal. We're the ones who don't lie at work. And when we see someone with a need, we take care of it. Because that's what Christians do. And so if we read in the paper about some laborers who have no food or water during a blackout, then we're we're the ones bringing them food. We don't sit around and wait for someone else to do it. If someone is sick and hurting, we're the first ones at their house helping them with their kids, cleaning their bathrooms. We're the ones there to provide support and a lending hand because that's what Christians do. We respond to the love of God by loving those who are hurting around us. As I sat on the metro this week with my sister taking the green line from Alcacese down into Dira, I just looked out of the windows and I just love. At around the, kind of the early evening time to ride the, the green line as it's newly opened and just look out the windows. And you can look down on one side and see the sunset and you see the birds Khalifa, but but to be honest, I'd rather look out the windows of the other side and you see Alcassaice and Sharjah. And I love thinking about all the people who live in those thousands of apartment buildings that cover the horizon. And I pray, what if we as a church, what if Redeemer Church of Dubai loved the people of this city? What if we as a church championed the cause of loving the people of the UAE and we stopped using this country merely to serve our own needs? What if instead of complaining about the red tape of this city, which I am totally guilty of, what if instead we quiet our lips and we begin to delight in the great things God is doing in our city and in and through the people of this city? And what if we viewed the UAE here not as a parenthesis in our lives, but as a place that we love and care about today? Because, friends, unless our government is causing us to do something in opposition to our Christian faith, we are to give Caesar what is Caesar's. We are to be good law-abiding citizens. We are to care for this land and care for this place. And, friend, as an individual Christian, you are to be looking out for these needs not to wait for the church to set something up or the government to set something up or for an organization to set something up. No, you as an individual Christian are called to love the people around you. When we look at James one twenty seven: that true and undefiled religion is caring for the orphans and the widows in their distress. We need to look out for those needs and care and love for those around us. And friend, the best way to love those around us is to proclaim the life-giving words of Jesus, isn't it? It's to tell them the message that God saves sinners and to tell them how they can move from death to life. Friend, proclaim the gospel to those around you and adorn that gospel. Back it up with your good works. And may we as a church love this place and love these people in a way that magnifies Christ to all around us. And in such a way that the government is pleased with us it's such a way that the government loves the fact that Christians live in this country. Oh friend, would we be a blessing to those around us? But that's not all we see in life before resurrection. Not only are we to love those in earthly authority over us, we are to love God who has ultimate authority over us. So that's the 2nd subpoint here under the first main point. We are to love God who has ultimate authority over us. And let's think again about what Jesus is doing when he takes out that denarius. Now I'm going to take out my own denarius. I like to carry it around with me as I go about the city. Not really, but I do actually have a real denarius in my hands. Uh, This very coin was minted uh, between A.D. 16 and A.D. 37, Uh, and was spread all around the Roman Empire. One of our members of our church here collects rare and ancient coins and is writing books about them, so I was able to to snag this one for the day. And we'll put one up on the screen here. Daisy will get one up so you can see uh, a picture of this coin, of this image of Caesar. And on the inscription it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of God, Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest. It's interesting that Caesar and Jesus are called the exact same thing. And Jesus holds up the coin and says, King, Son of God, High Priest. And what does he then say about it? He says, well, render to Caesar what is Caesar's because whose portrait is on it? Caesar. You can see the coin there on your right. That's Caesar's face. Well, it's interesting that in the text, the word portrait in verse 16 is from the Greek word icon, meaning image or likeness. It's the same word in the Greek Old Testament in Genesis 1.27, speaking of God creating man in his own icon or image. It's a clear allusion back there to Genesis. So what Jesus is saying here is, well, give to Caesar what has his image on it, but whose image is on you? God's. So what belongs to God? You, Your whole self, Caesar may get some of your coins, but God has a right to all of you. You owe God your life. And so like this coin, dirty and rusted and turning green, you may be tainted by sin. You may be busted up, but you're still worth something to God because his face is on you. You belong to him. And the only way to render to God the things that are God's are to give God your very self. If it's a sin to withhold taxes from Caesar, how much greater a sin is it to withhold anything from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? His inscription is written all over you. Friend, what are you holding back from God? Our whole life needs to be offered to God as worship to Him. Whether it's your hours as an attorney or doing IT work or caring for your family or teaching in school, or as a student, or cooking meals, or whatever it is that you do throughout your week, or maybe it's what you do in your free time, or what you do when you're alone and no one's looking. Friend, all these times are meant to be done for the glory of God. He is to be the Lord of every area of our lives. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Friend, you belong to God. You and I bear his very image. So life before resurrection must be marked with love towards our earthly leaders and total allegiance to our heavenly God. But this life isn't the end of the story. The second thing we see in our passage is life after resurrection. That's the second main point in the passage if you're following along in the outline. Our life after resurrection we see that in verses 18 through 25. Let's look at those. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Well, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. And last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. So what happens when you die? Well, the Sadducees certainly had an opinion These guys were rich and powerful. They were a group who had a big stake in the temple. And so they hated Jesus. And they said that when you die, that's it. The moment you die, you are annihilated. That's it. Your life ends. There's no rewards. There's nothing you take with you. Your life is over. Unlike the Pharisees, they denied any supernatural. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And so they say, Jesus, how could there be a resurrection? No, there can't be one, because what would happen to the woman who was married to seven men? I mean, in the resurrection, who would she be married to? And they proposed this ridiculous situation. Seven brothers all die. They leave this woman without a child. They were using a rare exception in the book of Deuteronomy called Leverite Marriage, where a man was obligated to marry a childless widow of his brother to preserve the family name. So something we don't know if it actually practiced much, but it was there in Deuteronomy. And so they said, Jesus, this would be impossible for a woman to be married to seven men in heaven. So this idea of resurrection, it is utterly ridiculous. I mean, think of the absurdity. I mean, think about our day where there are widows, there's divorces, there's remarriages. I mean, are we destined for an eternity of awkward family photos? I mean, you stand here next to my husband, you stand next to my other husband, here's our kids. Okay, everybody, smile, cheese. You take these pictures. That'd be awkward. It'd be ridiculous. And can you imagine the craziness? It'd be weird. None of us want that. Now, is that what heaven's going to be like? An awkward family reunion? Running into crazy relationships, being married to multiple people? And so the Sadducees say, Jesus, there can't be a resurrection. There can't be. Look. Look, you can't be married to more than one person. Well, obviously, that's not what Jesus taught. Jesus teaches that there's a resurrection. He taught that in Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 9 and Mark chapter 10. The Old Testament speaks of a resurrection. Daniel 12, 2 centuries before Jesus. Or Isaiah 26, 19 centuries before Daniel. Or even Job 19, verse 25 centuries before Isaiah. And you could go on and on. But see, these Sadducees, they'd have none of that. They only believed in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, so they didn't care about these things. And so notice how Jesus replies in verses 26 and 27. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Jesus brilliantly quotes back to Exodus chapter 3. It's the passage that Tom Samuel read for us earlier this morning. This is a book that the Sadducees, they would have held on to, they would have listened to. And so it's there in Exodus in that passage that God reveals himself and rebukes Moses for his lack of faith. Now Jesus is doing the same thing. He's picking up the exact passage. He's revealing truth about God and he's rebuking the Sadducees for their lack of faith. He says, guys, you've read this book. You you like Exodus. It's one of your five books. Remember in Exodus 3? Remember that chapter? Remember when I told Abraham or told Moses, when I told Moses, hundreds of years after Abraham died, that I am the God of Abraham, that I am the God of Isaac, that I am the God of Jacob. Remember when I said that? Hundreds of years after they died, I said, I am still God over them. you see what he's doing there? He's saying, he's saying in the present tense that I am their God. And furthermore, to be someone's God... To be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be their God implies that you're their helper, that you're their savior, that you're their redeemer in the present. By very definition, God can't be God of the dead because then he wouldn't be God of anybody. No, God is the God of the living and God would not pledge himself to the dead unless the dead had been risen. His relationship doesn't end with death. The power of God reigns over and above death. Now, we do know that through the scriptures, we know that Jesus teaches kind of two stages of life after death. There's an intermediate state, a soul without a body. Now, this is not purgatory. There's no state in between where we pay for our sins or we suffer before going into heaven. Now, this is a glorious time for Christians before the resurrection of the body. We're not asleep, but our hope is ultimately in the second stage, in the resurrection of the body, in the renewal of the entire cosmos, It happens at the end of the age. It's when Jesus comes back. And so Jesus refutes the Sadducees' accusation. He says, friends, no, look back at Exodus 3. Look back at these other passages. Look back at what I have taught you. There will indeed be a resurrection. He gives us a brief yet very telling description of life after resurrection, doesn't he? In verse 25. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. It's interesting because this verse is the only description of the resurrected life that we have in our passage. And there's really not that much more in the Bible. You know, we see some symbolism. We see some greater realities that are pointed to in the book of Revelation and a few other places. But for the most part, there's not much. And I think the reason is it would be really impossible to comprehend heaven using earthly images be like trying to explain to people who live their entire lives in an igloo in in antarctica about the palm jumeirah in dubai (laughs) trying to describe the palm trees and the sand and the fake island and the hotels and that water slide that goes straight down i mean can you imagine trying to describe that to someone who's only seen ice and polar bears perhaps an easier way to describe it or maybe the only way to describe it would be to tell them what's not there you know, the fish, the cold, the frostbite, the bears. So Jesus tells them here. He tells them that there'll be no marriage in the resurrected life. Now, now there will be relationships. You'll see loved ones. But continuing our earthly marriage is not the point of the resurrected life. I mean, how many of us have been to funerals where the good news is that grandma and grandpa will be reunited? that they'll see their kids in glory, that they'll have each other again. But see, friend, the glory, the good news of the glory in heaven is not merely in reunited relationships. No, all the talk of glory throughout the New Testament is about seeing and savoring the majesty of our God and unceasing worship of Christ without the hindrance of any sin. No, friend, God is the good news. God is who we will be united to in heaven. And that's why we can... Why Jesus can say that we'll be like the angels, that our lives will center on worshiping God, singing of His worth forever. Now, friend, if you could have in heaven, if you could have heaven with all the best biryani in the world, (laughs) lamb biryani, Chicken biryani, a full buffet of all kinds of biryani. And better yet, it would be impossible for you to gain weight. And all your family was there with you. Well, just the ones you like, of course. But the ones you like would be there with you. Your friends would be there with you. The great mountains and the sea and the beach and everything you like, all the wonderful things you like would be there with you. But no Jesus. Is that a good deal? If you would have every single earthly delight, everything you like to do, all the things that this earth has to offer, but no Jesus, would that make you happy forever? If we're honest, for a lot of us, deep down we're thinking, oh yeah, you you forgot Jesus. What is it that you long for most? To what does your mind drift off towards when you have a free moment? More often than not, our view of what heaven will be like matches our view of what our earthly utopia would look like, with us at the center gratifying our earthly bodies, satisfying our earthly pleasures. No, instead, our church should be an outpost of hope because of the truth of the resurrection. And yet... For many of us, we become what Paul Tripp calls eternity amnesiacs. We go throughout the week living in the here and now. We try to soak in as much pleasure as we can as if this is it. And so when things don't go our way, we're crushed. When things don't happen the way we want them to happen, we're destroyed. We're hurt. So Tripp says that some of us need to step off our treadmill of our busy lives and consider what life looks like when viewed through the lens of forever. Forever. Fellow Christian, you will be resurrected to be with God. This floods of significance for us. You don't need a better now, but we need eternity to reshape our here and now. Friend, remember this this week as you work at your marriage. Remember this as you care for your children, as you decide what to spend money on as you move, as you consider what neighborhood to relocate to, as you consider whether to take a promotion or not, as you consider how many hours you should remain at work, as you consider how you disciple and train up your children. Fellow Christians, we consider this because we are to do everything in light of eternity. So I want to give us a little homework assignment this morning. I know... Some of you didn't expect to get homework at church, but just to give you a, just an assignment that I think will be good for our souls today, I want you to talk to your friends and family at lunch today about what living with eternity in mind will mean very practically for you this week. What will living in light of eternity mean for you practically this very week? I mean, very practically, we can think very abstractly how will our big life consider eternity as we move on. No, but I want you to consider how will eternity shape your Saturday? How will living in view of eternity shape your Sunday and your Monday? And I'd love for you to talk about that with your family, talk about that with your friends, and perhaps even pray for one another. Because as you consider how living like this will affect your attitude and desires, you'll start seeing that it will affect the way you worship God, it'll affect how you spend your time, it'll affect what you think about when you wake up in the morning and how you go about your day. It's just so important to us because physical death isn't the end of us. Our bodies will be raised from death. If you're here and you're not a Christian, realize that this world is not all there is. We're we're made for something more. This might explain some of the longings, maybe some of the dissatisfactions that you have with this life. I think C.S. Lewis put it well when he said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Well, indeed we were. And our hope is in Jesus, God in the flesh, who himself rose from the dead. But in his death, Paul says that Jesus became the Passover lamb, sacrificed to take away our sins. Because each and every one of us had transgressed against an almighty God. But instead of giving us death, the very death that we deserved, we can experience the ultimate love story. See, when Jesus says there will be no more marriage in heaven, it's actually not the whole story. It means that we understand there to be an even greater marriage in heaven. It will be far more amazing than what we could dream of here on earth. Whatever joy you experience in marriage here on earth will be the smallest foretaste of the joy of what we experience in heaven. Marriage on earth will look like a little pebble in comparison to the mountain range of marriage in heaven. Because if you're a Christian, Jesus is going to marry us all. He is the bridegroom, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're a widow, widower, divorced, in a difficult marriage. No matter your life story today, you will experience the greatest marriage ever conceived. That's your destiny, friend, sitting at the head table at the marriage supper of the Lamb with all saints from all times, worshiping the great King. Friend, that's your destiny as a believer in Christ. That's what we have to look forward to. No pain, no sorrow, worship with the living King, married forever with the one who died for us. Friend, if you're not a Christian, if you don't follow Jesus yet, I want to tell you that you were made for something more than this life. The Bible says that we're all going to be raised. Some of us raised to eternal life in heaven with Jesus. And others of us raised to condemnation, to eternal punishment in hell. There is no other destiny. But friend, I want to tell you the best news in the world. I want to tell you the best news that any one of us could tell you today, and it is good news. It's that you can be assured even today that you'll be raised with Christ. You can be assured today of salvation. You can be assured today that you will be saved if you follow Jesus. Remember back to the Reformers, back to Martin Luther. He stood up for this very truth that there is nothing we can do to be saved, that we are wicked individuals, that we need Jesus to save us. Friend, I want to tell you that same thing, that you need Jesus. And Jesus says the way to be saved is to turn from your sin, to turn from trying to save yourself by doing any of these other things, to follow Christ, and he will save you, and on that day, you'll be resurrected to life. I encourage you to believe in him today. Don't be like the Sadducees who missed it. They came to undo Jesus and they were undone by him. They didn't know the scriptures. They missed the power of God. They were badly mistaken. Don't make the same mistake. Come to Jesus. Come to him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. We ask for your grace as we go forth this morning. Would we live our lives this week in light of the resurrection? Would eternity be on our hearts? Would we shine brightly in the UAE? Would the rulers be delighted in us? Would our neighbors and coworkers see Jesus in us? Father, would we serve you and serve this church, not for our own glory, Father, but for the glory of God. Would your fame spread in this land? Would we boldly proclaim the gospel to those around us? Father, would folks be saved? Would folks come to know you? Father, we pray even this morning for those in our midst who don't know you. Father, we pray that they would believe. Pray that they turn from their sin and know for certain that on that day, They'll be resurrected to life for eternity with you. That we will all join together at the marriage supper of the Lamb, saying, holy, holy, holy is God the Lord Almighty. For your fame and the honor of your name, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.